first reading is taken from the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 14, verses 66 to 72, which can be found on page 1022. Peter disowns Jesus. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene, Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing round, this fellow is one of them, and again he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, surely you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses on himself and swore to them, I don't know this man you're talking about. Immediately, the cock crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had spoken to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of God. Our second reading is from 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 1 to 18, and that can be found on page 1197 in the Church Bibles. 2 Timothy, chapter 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Discharge all the duties of your ministry. For I am already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. Do your best to come to me quickly, for Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and has gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia and Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, because he is helpful to me in my ministry. I sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and my scrolls, especially the parchments. Alexander the metalworker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. 
you too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. At my first offence, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory for ever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Would you turn in your Bibles to kick, or keep that uh, reading, second reading open? It's on page 1197. And uh, I was reminded as uh, Margaret led us in our prayers, I should have drawn your attention to the sad occasion on February the 15th, there will be a special reception as Margaret returns to Northern Ireland. Let's pray just as we sit. Loving Father, we thank you that your word is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. May we pay close attention to what you have to say to us today. Amen. Well, today we come to the end of our series in Paul's second letter to his young assistant, Timothy. And Paul was in prison, not under house arrest as he had been during his first imprisonment, but under the reign of the Emperor Nero, he was in a cold dungeon, chained like a criminal. And the date was around 66, 67 AD. And Paul knew that his, <coughs> his death was near, and in chapter 4, he gives Timothy his final charge. If you knew that you would die in the next seven days, what key thoughts would you want to leave behind? Paul was a minister of the gospel, writing to another younger minister of the gospel, so much of what he writes can be directly applied to the ministry. But since, as Paul has told us in the preceding chapter, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, we can be sure that what Paul says to Timothy can be applied today to all of us, men and women, young and old, children, and whatever our occupation or place in life. So what are Paul's key thoughts? What are the special words of encouragement he wants to leave behind? And here's the first one. Make the word of God the truth on which you base your life. Make the word of God the truth on which you base your life. Look at verse 1. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Paul makes clear the motivation for the charge. In the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead and in view of his appearing and his kingdom. Timothy will be called to account and have to face God's judgment as to whether he has fulfilled this very personal obligation. But we are also under a similar obligation in the work we do, whether that's in the home or outside it. 
It is a certainty that God will judge us too, as certain as the promise of Jesus' second coming and the existence of God's kingdom. However, please note that provided we've personally accepted Jesus Christ into our lives as our Lord and Savior in this life, then when Christ comes again, it will not be a judgment as to our final destiny, for that has already been secured. And Paul does not ignore the challenge of the times, the context in which this charge was to be fulfilled. In his first letter to Timothy, chapter 1, Paul writes about men who were teaching false doctrines, myths, and endless genealogies. And as a result, some had wandered away from sincere faith and turned to meaningless talk. And in this second letter, by contrast, he encourages Timothy, what you've heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. The need to protect the truth of God's word clearly weighs on Paul, because here in this last chapter, probably of his last letter, he returns to it again. For the time will come, verse 3, when men will not put up with sound doctrine, instead to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. This was Paul and Timothy's contemporary scene. Paul could foresee a time when people would not listen first and then decide whether what they heard was true according to God's word. They would first decide what they wanted to hear and then would select teachers who would oblige them by doing just that. And in both letters, Paul uses very strong language when describing the false teachers. And he uses strong language because false teaching can lead people to totally miss out, to miss out on heaven and eternal life. It's a very solemn thing to take on the role of teaching God's word. James, in his letter, highlights this. Listen to what he says. Not many of you should presume to be teachers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Those words always make me very anxious and concerned. If you look at our contemporary church scene, we would have to agree that Paul's prophecy has certainly come true. Isn't it a fact that in many churches today you won't hear sound doctrine taught from the Bible because it's so uncomfortable and opposite to what the prevailing culture believes? I always advise people who move out from London to find their church first and then their house. And sadly, over the years, I've known a number who ignore that advice and then regret it. They find they have to drive long distances to find a Bible-teaching church where sound doctrine is upheld and people's souls are fed. But what is it that Timothy is to preach? In a word, it's the gospel. The good news about how men and women can be saved from an eternity without God for an eternity with him in glory. So when almost to the day, 40 years ago, as a puzzled student, I had questions about Jesus' death on the cross and what it meant, a vicar very gently taught me the truth with an open Bible 
and he took me to the Word. And yes, the Word, God's Word, does contain uncomfortable truths. Tragically, it's possible to hear from some pulpits that all religions lead to God. However, Jesus taught the opposite. In a multicultural, multi-faith context, he uncompromisingly declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. You may hear taught in a pulpit that the way to heaven is by leading a good life. But the word of God says that we are saved by grace through faith, not by works, so no one may boast. That is what I meant by it being a matter of life and death. Because wrong teaching will affect a person's eternal destiny. We need to preach and teach the word of God. How is Timothy to do that? He is to be prepared for every opportunity. We need to be on standby or like a doctor on call. We are to be ready in season and out of season. And please note, what that means is that the timing of the conversation will not necessarily be at our convenience. I remember a conversation with someone who, like me, had attended a Thanksgiving service for the life of a dearly loved vicar who had died all too young. We bumped into one another in the street, and I could see that he'd been deeply affected spiritually by the service. I realized I had just a brief moment to say something from God's word about God's personal invitation to believe and trust in him. I have no idea what happened as a result, but I knew that this was an opportunity that had to be seized then and there in the street. Are you prepared for people's questions? Amy Or Ewing has written a great book entitled, But Is It Real?, answering 10 common objections to the Christian faith. Why not get hold of that book, which will help you give answers from God's word whenever your moment comes and you're on the spot? What about Timothy? How is he to conduct himself? He is to keep his head in all situations. He is to endure hardship, and he's also, and note this, to do the work of an evangelist. An evangelist is someone who has a particular spiritual gift. Roger Simpson, who spoke at our last house party, is a gifted, engaging speaker and an evangelist. He communicates the gospel very effectively. My second vicar didn't see himself as an evangelist, but he reminded me that Paul says here in verse 5, do the work of an evangelist. We may not be evangelists in the way that Roger is, but we are to do the work of one. And sometimes, like that brief meeting I had in the street, we are the one that God commissions to explain the gospel. And it's no good saying, I'm not very good at this, why don't you speak to someone else? God expects us to get on and do it. Inviting someone to a guest evening where the gospel will be explained is doing the work of an evangelist. I hope you've got that date, Thursday, March the 5th. We have a great opportunity, a wine tasting led by a master of wine. I wonder if she shouldn't be called a mistress of wine, but there we are, uh, where the gospel will also be explained 
Start thinking now about who you will invite. It is a guest service, a guest opportunity. So Paul's first foundational point, a word of encouragement. Make the word of God the truth on which you base your life. The second key lesson Paul leaves with Timothy is this. Live in such a wholehearted way for God that you can face death with eager anticipation. Live in such a wholehearted way for God that you can face death with eager anticipation. Look at verses 6 to 8. As Paul looks back over 30 years of his work as an apostle, Paul states three things. First, I have fought the good fight. He has stood firm against the rulers, authorities, powers, and spiritual forces of evil. He has been unafraid to teach the truth about God, whatever the cost, and he has suffered greatly as a result. Christians are more and more being called to stand up for their beliefs and not to wobble and not to drift. It may mean we have to challenge some questionable behavior in business. A parent may need to explain to their children why church going for them as a family is non-negotiable. Next, Paul says, I've finished the race. He's comparing himself with a highly trained and disciplined athlete. The writer to the Hebrews uses the same picture to describe the Christian surrounded by witnesses, running with perseverance the race marked out for us. And it's the same for you and me. The starter's gun has been fired, and God has marked a lane for us to run in, our personal lane. We are to keep going, heading straight for the tape and for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not to give up till we get there. And Paul knows he is just about to hit the final tape. And then he says, I have kept the faith. Paul has guarded the deposit of Christian truth against false teaching and false doctrine. But listen to the eager anticipation in Paul's voice in verse 8. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness. In the original Olympic Games, successful athletes would be given an evergreen wreath as a crown, not a gold medal, but an evergreen wreath. And here, it's the reward which will be given by the righteous judge to Paul and every faithful Christian. No wonder he looks ahead eagerly. He knows that the best is yet to come. None of us knows when the time, time will come for our departure. Are we ready? As Paul was. As we look ahead to 2015, are there things that need changing in our lives or things we should have put in place so that when we face our own death, and remember, age doesn't come into it, we can echo Paul's words for ourselves. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Do we have unfinished business in a relationship, someone we need to forgive, a task that needs to be completed? Do we need to set aside more time for prayer and Bible study? Are we serving God as faithfully as we could be, whether in the office, in the classroom, or at home with young children? In short, are we living wholeheartedly for God? 
At our Vision Supper last year, I showed a video by Mark Green, author of what is to be our Lent course starting next month, called, as I said, Fruitfulness on the Front Line. The idea is this, all of us are on the front line. And Mark gave the example of the Christian lady who suffered badly from arthritis. And she realized that her front line was the hydrotherapy pool. That was where she was called to serve God. Where is your front line? What does God want you to do in order to fight the good fight? In this new year, let's determine to live so wholeheartedly for God that we, like Paul, can face even death with eager anticipation. And the third key thought from Paul, however tough life may be, God will see us through. However tough life may be, God will see us through. Paul faced many tough situations, and in verses 9 to 18, he lists some of the people that he'd come across. What difficulties did he face? Some of them reflect what Jesus experienced too. For example, in verse 10, we read that he was deserted by Demas because he loved this world. It's always sad for a Christian leader to see someone who was a fellow worker falling away from their faith because other priorities have taken the place that should be reserved for God. And so often, it's the idols of success, money, or other glittering prizes. But in this list, positive and negative about people, clearly it's Timothy he longs to see. Do your best, verse 9, do your best, Timothy, to come to me quickly. One of the ways God sees through tough situations is by providing good friends. And Paul clearly valued his. Friendship whether we are single or married, is often overlooked and undervalued in our busy world. However, friends are vital at all times, but especially in a crisis, as Paul clearly demonstrates. So, nurture your friendships. They are not a luxury, but a necessity. And there's a great book on this subject by Vaughan Roberts, who is himself single, called simply Friendship, and it's well worth reading. But despite all of this, there was a moment when Paul was left deserted, verse 16, at the first court hearing of his case. And as we heard in our first reading too, Jesus also was deserted, even by closest friends like Peter, when his trial came. So how did Paul react to his tough situation? First, No recriminations against his friends, verse 16. Second, the total awareness that he was not alone. For, verse 17, the Lord stood by his side. Isn't that a wonderful thing to reflect on? The Lord stood by his side. And not only that, the Lord gave him the strength to testify about the gospel to the emperor's court. This is another wonderful moment. This is at the end of his life. He's up in front of the most supreme court. And what does he do? Verse 17, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. They could not say they didn't know about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The vicar I mentioned earlier who led me to Christ and the one who in fact first suggested I should think of ordination never married. He lived all out for Christ and the last time I saw him when he was well into his 70s he was sitting in a cafe in Durham in earnest conversation with a student. To the very end Mark seized every opportunity to preach the word to encourage younger people in a life of wholehearted discipleship. So what was it that kept Paul going? Look at verse 18. The certain knowledge that God would rescue him. What a ringing declaration of faith. Three key thoughts that he leaves to young Timothy as he faced certain death. Three great truths for our encouragement as we face 2015. The first one, make the word of God the truth on which you base your life. Second, live in such a wholehearted way that you can face death, even death, with eager anticipation, knowing that the best is yet to come. And thirdly, however tough life may be, God will see you through. He will be standing at your side. So may we, like Paul, be able to say, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. Let us pray. A moment of quiet. And this is where, listening to God each individually, we take hold of what it is that God has said to us. It may be on friendship. It may be to spend more time in God's truth, his word. It may be to understand that we need not be slaves to the fear of death. For God promises a crown of righteousness to those who believe and trust in him. Heavenly Father, it would be hard not to be moved by Paul's final instructions as he faced death to young Timothy. And in a sense, we know that Timothy carried them out because here we are, the baton has been passed from one to the other to the next. And we pray that in our generation, in our time, with the challenges that we face in our culture and society and personally, we too may be found faithful and be able to echo those amazing words, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Amen.